Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and this morning we come to verses 20 through 26. Second Timothy chapter two, beginning in verse 20. Please give your full attention to God's holy, inerrant, and powerful word. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. I came across a Facebook post this week that I discovered had gone viral. It was uh, by a middle-aged mom, and it, at the beginning of it had a picture, a picture of a middle-aged man walking into a grocery store. And underneath the picture, this is what she wrote. She said, listen up, young ones. This is what your knight in shining armor looks like when you're in your 40s. Yes, that's my amazing husband who is arriving on the scene with his credit card because what you can't see is me standing next to a cart full of groceries I couldn't pay for because I couldn't find my wallet. Not sure if you can tell, but he's smiling at me. Yeah, he had to leave work and he is smiling. His only words of admonishment were, you're not supposed to be grocery shopping. I said I would go this week. Seriously, young people, this is what love looks like when you're old, and it's ridiculous how awesome it is. Do not be fooled by big, showy promposals and giant cards with candy bars glued to them with some cute saying or by your name spelled in pepperoni on a pizza by a boy who's asking you to homecoming. That isn't the stuff that lasts, and let's be honest, moms are totally helping them with those things anyway. <laughs> Watch how he treats you when Instagram isn't looking. That's where the signs are. Choose the man who will carry your too heavy, flowered backpack in public because he will be the one who bails you out at Aldi's when you're 40-something with a smile and a hug. And that, my friends, is true love. When I looked at it, it had been shared 114,000 times. When something like that goes viral, pay attention. 
It's one of the purposes of Facebook in my life is to be able to have a window into the soul of my culture. And the things that go viral like that are telling you something about our culture. Usually it's something very bad, but sometimes just a little glimmer of light. And I'm hoping that if you're, you are already married, that you're nodding in agreement and saying, duh, of course, that's what love is supposed to look like. Because it really should be obvious to those of us who are Christians that that's what real love looks like. Unfortunately, and I don't want to sound like I'm advocating for arranged marriages or anything, but it is really true as I think back on my own life that typically in your late teens, early 20s is when you're really starting to really seriously look for a spouse. That's like, we're so stupid at that part of our lives. We, we, have, we have the wrong criteria. Sorry, guys. It's, we, have the wrong, we have the wrong criteria when we're looking for a spouse. We weigh, put way too much weight on, first of all, how physically attractive they are. It's meaningless in eternal terms how physically attractive they are. But that's where we put so much weight. Or how popular they are. Or how much fun they are or how likely they are to have a large salary when they graduate and get a job. We put so much weight on these things and they're meaningless in the big picture. It should be obvious to any Christian that the characteristics that are most important in a spouse are faithfulness, kindness, and sacrificial love. Well, I'm not talking about those kinds of relationships today. I'm talking about a different kind of relationship. A relationship that's just, in many ways, as important as a spouse that you choose, if you choose a spouse. And that's the relationship with your spiritual leader, your teacher, your mentor, your preacher. Those who teach you and lead you in your spiritual life. How do you make those choices? And unfortunately, I hate to say it, but too many Christians base them on very similar characteristics and well, how the world looks for a spouse. How physically attractive are they? How how uh, charismatic are they? How popular are they? We look at the wrong factors. We look to see who entertains us the most as opposed to who really challenges us and feeds us by the Word of God. I was very glad to receive an email from my brother Ben Thompson this week. Those of you there are members of the church, remember Ben, one of our elders, who just in the last few weeks have moved down to Dallas, the Dallas, Texas area, looking for a church. And Ben and Joanna, they, they know what to look for in a church. They know what to look for in a spiritual leader. They know what to look for in a teacher, a, a preacher. But yet still, he's writing to me and describing the churches and the pastors and the sermons that they've been listening to as they've been looking for a new church and asking for guidance from me. Say, what do you think? Where do you think we fit best? Where do you think is the best place for me and my family? There's a real sense in which I think the re one of the reasons why Paul wrote what we call the pastoral epistles. The pastoral epistles are 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And we call them that because it's Paul writing to young pastors, telling them how to do a good job as young pastors. What is God looking for in them as young spiritual leaders, teachers, mentors, preachers? And the great thing for those of us who are in those roles, our spiritual leaders or teachers, Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers, mentors, whatever our role is in the church, it's great for us in that, in that regard, but it's also great for us to look at from the other angle and say, who am I gonna choose to put 
myself under as a leader, a spiritual leader, as a teacher, as a preacher, as a mentor? Who am I going to commit myself to to be those that will speak the word of God into my life? We get a lot of instruction. I'm hoping you're picking up on that. I keep stressing to you, just because these letters are written to young pastors, don't think it does, they don't apply to you. Everything applies to you, maybe in a slightly different way than it does to Timothy, but it all applies to you. And so Paul is teaching us what to look for in those who lead and teach us, and also how we are to lead and teach others in whatever role the Lord has put us in. How do we find workers approved by God? Remember, that's how he started this section. In order to understand this part of, first, of 2 Timothy 2, you have to understand the whole context here. And if you remember last week, when I wasn't here, uh, Pastor Richard led us in looking at, at verse 15. And that's how verse 15 really introduces this section. And that's where Paul says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. A worker in the word of God who has no reason to be ashamed. A worker approved by God. Don't you wish it was easy to find a preacher, teacher, mentor who's approved by God? Don't you wish that they just had like a tattoo on their forehead, you know? Like a seal on a product, you know, certified, approved by God? You wish it was that easy. It isn't that easy. In verse 15, Paul is already given the most important characteristic. Don't miss this. Anything I say today is secondary to what you heard last week as the most important characteristic of one who is going to be your teacher, mentor, spiritual leader, where he says that he must be rightly handling the word of truth. He could be eminently qualified in every other way, but if he is not rightly handling the word of truth, God's word, the scriptures, then run. He is not qualified to be your teacher or leader. If he changes the word of God, if he corrupts the word of God, if he adds to the word of God, if he takes away from the word of God, or if he just ignores the word of God, then he is not qualified to be your teacher. So we begin there. Just a reminder, that's what you learned last week in in the passage last week. But then he moves on in verse 20 to talk about other characteristics of a God-approved worker. And he begins with a metaphor, kind of an odd metaphor, where he talks about two kinds of vessels. In verse 20, he says, Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Now when he says great house, what he means is what we would think of in a mansion. Some place where the rich and the famous live. And so in a mansion, he says, there are, now he says vessels. The word's actually a very general word. It could apply to almost anything in a household. But in this context, he seems to be thinking of what we think of as utensils or dinnerware. Bowls, dishes, plates, forks, spoons. It it sounds like that's what he's thinking of in a household. Some are of gold and silver. Some are of wood and clay. For us, you know, if you think about, we we have wealthy households. I know we don't like to think of ourselves as wealthy, but if you live in America, you're probably wealthy. And we have, you know, the fine china and the silver teapot and and settings. And then you have the plastic plates and the, you know, the paper plates and the plastic silverware. You know, that's the, that's the kind of distinction that Paul's making. On the one hand, the gold and silver utensils and dinnerware, those are heirlooms. Those are to be passed down to generations. Those are to be highly valued. Those are put on display in the china cabinet. Those are the valuable things. And then you've got the wood, in Paul's day, it was wood and clay. 
you know, the disposable things, things that really don't matter. They're, they're quickly used and forgotten. He says in the great house, in the church, the great house the, the, that he's talking about is the church. And many people read this and think, well, okay, he must be talking, must be kind of like a parallel to the wheat and tares, the story that Jesus told, that in the church there are believers and unbelievers. Well, that's not what he's saying. The, the vessels here, in this context he's talking about, are the gold and silver vessels would be the true teachers, the good teachers, the trustworthy teachers, the ones who are faithful to the word of God. And then the disposable, or what he calls dishonorable, teachers would be the false teachers. And he's just referred, actually, to a couple of them, hasn't he? He refers to uh, Philetus and Hymenaeus. He says they would swerve from the truth regarding the resurrection. They would be an example of vessels for dishonorable use. Now, you might be saying, how do I know that he means teachers when he says vessel? Well, it's how he uses the word. Not only do we not know it, for, we know it from the context here, but when he talks about a vessel, often when he talks about his own ministry, he calls himself a vessel. Let me give you a couple examples. Actually, Luke calls him a vessel. Well, actually, the Lord calls him a vessel in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 9, verse 15, of course, Acts 19 is where it tells about Paul's conversion and his call to preach the gospel to the nations. And in verse 19 of Acts 9, or verse 15 of Acts 9, the Lord speaks to Ananias about Paul, and this is what he says about Paul. He is a chosen instrument, that's how the ESV translates it, but in the original language it's the same word that Paul uses here. He is a chosen vessel of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. He calls Paul a chosen vessel. And the vessel, and that's why it's helpful to think of it as a vessel, Paul's like a, a bowl. It's not really important. The bowl's not so important as to what the bowl holds. And he is given, he says that he has given him the role of carrying the name of Christ to the nations. He says something very similar over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, in verses 6 and 7. There Paul is speaking of himself and his associates, and he says this, that they had been given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's just a, 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 a complicated way, beautiful, glorious way of talking about the gospel. We have been, he says, we, the preachers of the word, teachers of the word, have been given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But, he goes on to say, we have this treasure in jars, or again in the original language it's vessels, in vessels of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So those who are called to be teachers, preachers, spiritual leaders, mentors, Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers, they are vessels that are given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ to be brought to others. And Paul, and it's interesting because there he, Paul calls himself a vessel of clay. That's because he's comparing himself to the glory of God. And he says that the glory of God shines basically through him as he holds that light within himself. But when, So when he compares himself to the glory of God, he says, I'm like a, a, a vessel of clay. But then when he compares himself to the false teachers, the Hymenaeuses and the Philetuses of the church, when he compares himself to them, he calls himself a vessel of gold and silver. Because true teachers compared to false teachers 
That's the right comparison. Paul is telling Timothy that he and all people who are vessels of God's word, of the gospel, he uses the word to cleanse yourself. Cleanse yourself. Purge that which is not true and good and true and noble and right. Purge yourself, he says, of the dishonorable teachings and practices of the false teachers in the church. Cleanse yourself. Get rid, break association with anything that would lead away from the word of God. When we're interviewing elders or deacons or when we interview pastors for the staff, one of the questions that I always like to be sure to ask is, who do you read? Who, what podcasts do you listen to? What blogs do you read online? And what I'm asking is, who's speaking the word of God into your life? Whose worldview, whose theology is shaping the way you view God, the way you view yourself, and the way you view the world around you? Because in many ways, that's some of the most important information about whether this person is a vessel of gold and silver or a, or a vessel of wood and clay. What has shaped them? I was, this past week, just a few days ago, I got an email from a member of our congregation, and they wanted to ask a question of me, but they prefaced it with a, with a big apology, like, I'm really, really sorry to take your time, and I know you're busy, but I just have a question. There's this book, and I don't know the author. It seems like it speaks to what, I want to have a Bible study with another person, and it kind of speaks to what we want to talk about and study together from the scriptures. But I don't know if this person is trustworthy. I don't know if this would be a good resource to use in our study or not. And before I answered the question, and I did give a full endorsement to what they were asking about. But before they asked, I, I, I wanted to just, first thing I want to say, don't apologize for this. That's why I'm here. That's like asking, you know, apologizing to a plumber for fixing your leaky pipes. You know, that's, that's why I'm here. I'm here to help you cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, to break association with things that would lead you astray from Christ, that would lead you astray from the word of God, and connect you to things that will speak truth into your life and draw you to Christ. That's why they pay me the big bucks here. <clears throat> well, after talking about separating from sin in error, then Paul moves on to talk about two kinds of pursuits. As you look at those who are going to lead and teach you, think about two kinds of pursuits. And he talks about verse 22. He says, so flee youthful passions. Flee youthful passions. The word flee here means to actively, aggressively, energetically move yourself away from a place of spiritual danger. I get the image in my brain of Joseph fleeing from Potiphar's house when Potiphar's wife tried to tempt him into compromising sin. He fled. He ran away. And that is to be our attitude to, towards all that is wrong, to all that is error, to the, all that is sinful, to all that is wicked. We are to be fleeing from that. That's to be a characteristic of our lives, but especially those who lead and teach us. Now, when he says youthful desires, we tend to think, and I just mentioned Joseph, we tend to think of sexual sin, don't we? Because that seems to be the big sin that young people really wrestle with. 
But Paul doesn't, he, he doesn't make any reference to sexual sin particularly here, although certainly he'd have that in mind. He's talking much more generally. He's talking about any strong desires that those who are spiritually immature and spiritually inexperienced tend to have. And so sexual sin might be one of those, but it's only one among many that the spiritually immature have. And, you know, Paul is realizing here that those are the people, it's the spiritually immature, those are the ones that the false teachers prey upon. They're the ones that the false teachers seek out, the weak ones in the herd, so to speak. The ones that they, they attack, the ones that are spiritually immature. So Paul says, flee from youthful passions. And the particular spiritual danger in this context is the temptation to fall prey to false teaching in the ways of false teachers. And so the language of scripture is very strong when it comes to false teachers. Let me give you one example. The apostle John wrote three epistles. In, in his second epistle, in verses 9 and 10, the apostle John says this, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. If they aren't teaching Jesus Christ according to the scriptures, they don't know God, they don't have God. But then he goes on to say, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. We are not to welcome false teachers into the great house, the mansion of God's house. And so Paul says... We must flee false teaching and the false practice of false teachers. Then he goes on to say, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. You're always running away from something and towards something in the Christian life. Always running away from something and towards something. He says, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. One commentator called this the four marks of the true Christian life. And in a real sense, Paul, again, is you're just summarizing, these are the, 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 the main things that we're seeking out, the, the treasures that we're seeking after in life. But he says, pursue them. And I did a word study in the word pursue here, and it's actually an interesting word. In the original Greek, it means to chase something like in a hunt. It's like a predator going after a prey, is what he's saying. Don't just kind of casually walk along after it. Go after it like a predator goes after prey. I was, matter of fact, just a, a day before I read this and was studying this part of it, the day before that, I was watching TV, the night evening before, I was watching TV, and I was watching one of those nature shows. It was, it was called The Big Cats. It was about uh, lions, tigers. And I'm watching it, and of course, at a certain point, inevitably happens in every one of these shows, the pride of lions is stalking and circling around a poor, innocent giraffe. And, you know, I'm watching it stalk, and my wife's in the kitchen, kind of, she, you can see the television from the kitchen, and she's kind of watching it while she's working on something else. And you know where they switch? They, they, they figure they've got them now, they've got them surrounded, they've got them, and they, the, the, the little switch flips in them, and they go into full pursuit. And I'm just totally fascinated by how they chase that giraffe. Just how they, they cornered him, every, all of their juking and jiving, and, 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 and just it was amazing, like a, almost like a ballet. It was beautiful to watch in a way. But my wife in my ears said, turn the channel, turn the channel, turn the channel. <laughs> she didn't want to see the bloodshed, and I didn't either. And I did turn the channel before the bloodshed started. But I was mesmerized by the pursuit. 
And then the next day I'm doing this word study and it says, that's the way you're to go after righteousness, faith, love, and peace in your life. Pursue it that same way. Is that a description of your Christian life? Of course not. None of us are where we should be in this regard. But this is what the Lord is calling us to and he's empowering us to do by his grace. This is regeneration and conversion. We go from a place where we're fleeing from God. That's what happened in, in the Garden of Eden. We go from a place of fleeing from God and pursuing darkness and sin to pursuing God and fleeing from sin and darkness and error. That's what God has done in us by his grace. John Stott says the Christian life is all about ruthless rejection and relentless pursuit. That is the Christian life. And so then in this last section, the last couple of verses, Paul elaborates on one of those four marks of the Christian faith. He picks up on peace. We are to relentlessly pursue peace, even while we stand for the truth against a hostile world. And so the last comparison is between two kinds of advocacy. In other words, we, have been, we are vessels. We have been given the knowledge of the, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ to take to the world. How are we going to advocate for Christ? How are we going to advocate for the gospel? It's got to be different than the way the world does it. And that's what Paul's getting at in verse 23. This is such a common theme. How many times have we bumped up against this in his teaching to these young pastors? He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. Paul was very diligent in these letters. And I think those of you who are spiritual leaders, teachers, take note of this. He, was, he really wanted to drum this into these young pastors. Do not be quarrelsome. Do not seek quarrels. Do not get engaged in quarrels. And ignore, you know, get, get far as ways you can from these foolish, ignorant controversies. Back in verse 14, just go up a few verses to last week's passage. He says there, remind them not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins the hearers. In verse 16, he says, Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, you remember months ago when we looked at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 4, Paul is speaking about the false teacher, and this is what he says. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words, which produce envy, dissension, and constant friction. And then... Over in Titus chapter 3, again, to another young pastor, he says, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. It is a big red flag if those who are your spiritual teachers and leaders are only caught up in controversies and quarrels and fighting about words all the time. Because the result of that kind of ministry, of majoring on the minors, being divisive and, and, and seeking dissension. The fruit of that is constant friction, Paul says, and it destroys the church. Now, Paul isn't saying that we must never debate with anyone or disagree with anyone. Certainly, he's not saying that. He was very free and quick to, dis uh, to disagree and debate with others, and particularly false teachers. But he's saying we must be wise, wise as serpents and innocent as doves as we interact with those who are opposing the message that we are taking to the world. 
I was always fascinated by the fact that Jesus once said, I've, always, I've struggled most of my life to understand fully what he's saying, but he once said in Matthew 7, 6, he says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. Or if you remember the old translation, don't throw your pearls before swine. And I'm not sure everything that Jesus meant by that, but I do know that it applies here. What he's saying in this situation, agreeing with Paul, is that if someone is closed and hostile to what you're teaching, don't keep beating your head against the wall. Don't keep throwing your pearls of God's wisdom out there for them to grovel around in the mud and to mock and to destroy by their argument. Don't, you don't need to keep engaging someone who is not open to what you're telling them. In Matthew 10, 14, he says, If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust of your feet when you leave. See, that's understanding that God's got to do a work in those who oppose us, who disagree with us. God's got to do a work in them first. He has got to be the one who creates an openness in their heart, an openness of their ears, an openness of their mind to hear the truth. And if they're not there, he does not even, not only does he not expect you to keep beating your head against that wall, he doesn't want you to. To keep putting the pearls of, of the gospel back out there again and again to be mocked and, and rejected and and to be made fun of. So what he's saying is that you need wisdom from the Lord to distinguish between worthwhile debates and worthless debates. What is genuine engagement with someone who is willing to listen about what's important and what is just foolish and ignorant controversies that do nothing but distract from the truth. In verses 24 and 25, Paul says it's, it's, it's a matter of your character. He says, as the Lord's servant, he says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. He begins that by saying the Lord's servant. I think he's making a point by doing that. He's saying you, as a teacher, as a spiritual leader, as a Bible study leader, Sunday school teacher, a mentor, you are a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. You represent his word, you represent his kingdom, you represent his gospel as you take his word to the world. And so you need to reflect the very nature of Christ as you do so. You need to do so as Christ would do so. Isaiah 42 verses 1 and 2, speaking prophetically about the Lord Jesus Christ, it says, Behold my servant, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. As Jesus said about himself in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. I am meek and lowly, as it says in another translation. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Let me be clear, though, that gentleness, the kind of gentleness in our manner, in our tone, in our dealings with others, even those who are directly opposing us, is not timidity. Paul has repeatedly warned Timothy to not be timid. How many times have we heard that? What is one of Timothy's problems in his ministry is he was too timid. And by that I mean he, was, he would pull back. He was conflict-averse. He, he was not bold in presenting the truth. And so it's not being, that's not what Paul's saying when he says be gentle. He means to be confident. 
not in yourself, not in the flesh, not in your own wisdom, but be confident in the truth of the word of God that you represent. And be calm in the face of insult and opposition and even in, in the face of injury. That's what to, he means when he says to endure patiently. And be kind, but stand firm. That's how we should present the truth. When Paul, in Paul, when he's talking uh, to contentious believers, now in Second Corinthians, First and Second Corinthians, we know there was so much fighting, and he's speaking to kind of rebellious church members in Corinthians, in the letters to the Corinthians. He says in Second Corinthians ten, "I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ." He's going to appeal to them with the nature of Christ, imitating in the nature of Christ. That's what he's saying, with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Then he goes on to say, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Isn't that interesting? He starts by saying he's going to address them with the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then he talks about destroying strongholds going to spiritual battle and abolishing and, 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 and destroying arguments. But he doesn't do it as the world does it. The world argues, and you, know, you watch cable news, you, know, you read the internet, you read Facebook, you know, when people argue, people are mean, they're prideful, they're demeaning. They throw out ad hominem arguments. You know, they do things that are unfair. That's the way the world fights. Paul is saying to Timothy and to all of us who speak the word of God, do it with kindness. Do it with patience. Do it with gentleness. Because that shows that your confidence is not in the flesh, but in the power of the message that you're presenting. It is true. God's word is not only true, it will not return to him void. That's your confidence. We don't fight the good fight that Paul talks about the way the world fights. We don't fight with pride, with anger, with put-downs and demeaning attacks. You ever heard of cage stage Calvinists? It's a recent phrase in our theological circles. It's about, you know, when, when you, as a Christian, you start studying deeper theology and you come to embrace uh, reformed theology. And, you know, they say that when that happens, you need to put them away in a cage for a while because they're not safe. <laughs> they tend to bite. They, they tend to become very prideful. They tend to put other people down. They call them cage stage Calvinists. Well, there was an article in the Babylon Bee. Again, I, I, I wrestle with what role the Babylon Bee as a parody, as a satire site has in this whole thing of addressing your opponents gently. But, but anyway, the Babylon Bee is like the Christian onion. And so they have parody articles. And, and one of them was called, The Local Calvinist Leaves the Cage Stage and Embraces Quiet a Loose Smugness. <laughs> this is how it reads. It says, Local Calvinist Steve Wentworth officially departed the infamous cage stage Wednesday after nearly three years trapped in a state of near constant arrogance and almost unbearable obnoxious, abrasive attitudes about his newly discovered belief in Calvinism, also known as the Doctrines of Grace. Wentworth announced that he would now be embracing a more sophisticated brand of quiet, aloof smugness going forward. And then they quote him saying, I was, when I was a young, arrogant Calvinist, I thought like an arrogant Calvinist, I spoke like an arrogant Calvinist, I constantly debated people on Facebook like an arrogant Calvinist. 
But now that I am grown, I've put away these childish things and will instead just snicker and shake my head when I see foolish Christians posting inaccurate quotes about God on Instagram. <laughs> I have never liked the fact that even though I believe that our church's theology is the closest to biblical theology, that we go through stages like that. We get prideful about it. We get abrasive. We rejoice in putting other beliefs down. That's not the way we're supposed to present the truth. We, don't, we shouldn't expect people to listen if we're going to present it with that tone, with that attitude. Because it's, what's so odd is it's the doctrines of grace. It's understanding that we were nothing before God's grace found us. And we did nothing to deserve it. We did nothing. It wasn't even figuring out that the gospel is true. We didn't even do that on our own. God did that for us. He gave that to us as a gift. That's why Paul talks about God's role in verses 25 and 26. He says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. He's saying, Timothy, remind that's who you were, Timothy. You were intoxicated by the ways of this world. You were blind to the truth. You were in the snare of the devil. You were enslaved to sin and to the evil one. He's saying, Timothy, when you face opponents who disagree, when you try to present the truth of them and they disagree with you, always say first, there before the grace of God go I. That's exactly what he says over in Titus. If you just flip over a couple of chapters to Titus chapter 3, listen to what he says to that young pastor. He says, remind them, talking about the people he teaches, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. You see, we not only can be, but we must be gentle in sharing the truth with anyone because of the message that we preach. We were dead in sins. We were enemies of God. But he pursued us with that relentless love of his. He pursued us like a predator after prey to save us by grace alone. When you think of that, just one more reminder before we quit. The church only has one knight in shining armor. It's not me. It's not any of your elders. It's not your Bible study leaders. It's not your mentors. It's not your spouse. There's only one knight in shining armor, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the gold standard by which we measure all of our teachers, our leaders, and our mentors. And we all fail miserably by that standard. But therein is the last test for those when you're looking for a spiritual leader and teacher. How do they handle those failures? How do they handle the failures to measure up to the gold standard of Jesus Christ? Do they hide it? Do they justify it? Or do they humbly repent of it and acknowledge it and lean wholly on the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
It's the gospel that drives our gentleness. It's the gospel that enables us to fight the good fight the way Christ fought it, not the way the world fights it. It's because the gospel is true, and we've experienced it. Let's pray. Father, none of us is worthy to serve in the roles that you've called us to serve. But by your grace, you not only saved us, forgave us, restored us, reconciled us to yourself, but you also gave us a calling. The reason we're here in this fallen world, and we still have breath to breathe and days to live, is because we are here to be vessels that contain the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And our calling is to take that life, that water of life, to those who desperately need to hear it. May we do so with the tone, the attitude, the gentleness, the meekness, the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Forgive us for waging war the way that the world wages war. Give us a greater confidence that what we believe is true and that the gospel we preach is the only hope for this dying world. We pray in Christ's name.